Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Welcome to the Pitchfork Review. I'm Pooja Patel, the editor of Pitchfork, and I'm here with our staff writers, Sam Sadomsky. Hey, everyone. And contributing editor, Andy Kush. Hey, guys. So this episode, we're talking about Bob Dylan, who released a new album called Rough and Rowdy Ways last month. He's had multiple comebacks in his career, and after each one of them, we've really heard his music evolve. So we're going to talk about Rough and Rowdy Ways later this episode. But first, we're going to focus on some other comeback albums from Dylan's career. We're going to start with John Wesley Harding, which was released in 1967. So Sam, I know that John Wesley Harding is one of your favorite Dylan albums. Why do you consider that a comeback album of sorts? So Dylan in the mid-60s is like this total whirlwind of creativity and music, but it sort of comes to a halt uh, with this motorcycle accident that is sort of seen as like this moment of rebirth for him where he takes, it was just like a little over a year and a half or so. He decamps in Woodstock and somewhere in there writes and records the record John Wesley Harding that sort of comes out of nowhere and is seen as his return from the motorcycle accident. In some ways it was almost like a surprise drop There was no pre-release single. It just kind of showed up in stores and Dylan didn't really do any interviews around it. So it was sort of his way of avoiding the whole rollout that's associated with an artist like him who's kind of at the peak of their popularity, coming back after what was for him an unprecedented amount of time away. What did that mean sonically? Like, what did it sound like? Are there any kind of standout highlight songs? Well, that's the album that All Along the Watchtower is on, which became a huge hit when performed by Jimi Hendrix. Um, It's just a song filled with biblical allusions and these sort of apocalyptic-type visions. There are many here among us Who feel that life is but a joke But you and I, we've been... Another song to point out is I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine, which is almost like a... It sounds like a standard or just a song that exists outside of time. And Dylan plays harmonica on it that mimics the melody of his vocals. And to me, it's really representative of the simplicity or the starkness of the record. And bowed my head and prayed. For me, he has always felt like kind of this like authentic Americana historian, how specific he is in his references and how very purposeful he is with how he writes people in his songs or he writes like scenes or things that are happening in the world. And 
that to me feels like when Dylan sings, you listen because he's telling the truth of something that is happening in the world. Absolutely. Very true. Okay. So let's talk about a later album that also came out of a big transitional moment in Dylan's life. This one feels unequivocally like a comeback. In 1997, he released Time Out of Mind, which was his first album of original music in seven years. I heard that Dylan supposedly hated the sound of this album. Andy, what do you think of it? Oh, I think it sounds beautiful, but I do understand why Dylan might not like the way that it sounds. He had been working with this producer, Daniel Lanois, on a wonderful album called Oh Mercy. Uh, Daniel Lanois had applied this kind of atmospheric quality uh, to his music that never really had been there before. Uh, It's a really wonderful kind of spare, spacious, uh, very dark set of songs where Um, This is sort of a cliche about the album, but it feels like he's really reckoning with a lot of uh, nearness of death, um, with sense of loss of love. It's just really personal and heart-wrenching, and and it's a beautiful record. Sam, are there any songs that come to mind from that album as signifying where he was coming from? Yeah, I would say the song Not Dark Yet is um, a pretty crucial song in Dylan's career and for establishing the tone and the voice he would use throughout the 21st century on records. It's not dark yet, but it's getting there. The key lyric is, it's not dark yet, but it's getting there, which I think sort of sets the scene for the world he describes on his records. The closing song on Time Out of Mind is this song called Highlands that is this extremely long narrative song about a narrator who sounds like Dylan going to the Highlands, which is this kind of weird, symbolic, misty afterlife. It's definitely a type of later Dylan song where it digresses into a lot of weird tangents. There's a part where he shouts out Neil Young. I'm listening to Neil Young. I gotta turn up the sound. And then there's a long part about him going to a restaurant and having a conversation with a waitress. She say you probably won't It to me is like totally hypnotic. That's a song on Time Out of Mind that makes the album transcend and feel magical. Do you feel like leading up to the release of this album? Was there an expectation that he would continue to release new music because it had been so long and he was doing kind of this like cover set and this like traditional folk set of music? Like, did it feel like he was going to put out a bunch of new songs? Well, I wasn't around for its release or rather I was around, but I was just five and not keyed into the Dylan discourse. (laughs) But more attuned to it than your average. Yeah, I did because I did ask for this album for Hanukkah <laughs> shortly after. <it> for <laughs> oh wow! But um, anyway, when you look at how the album was received at the time, it won the Grammy for Album of the Year. Do you know if he accepted the award? I feel like it's so not Dylan to accept an award. He did. Yeah, there's like a funny video on YouTube of him accepting the award and seeming genuinely stoked about it, which is kind of funny. Dylan. I just like can't imagine him doing a 
overwrought thank you speech, calling out executives and stuff. Yeah, he has a line where he's like, um, he's like, we definitely got a particular kind of sound with this record. Uh, didn't know it when we had it. And then there's another line where he's like, everyone worked really hard on this, even the musicians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there's almost like a tone in his voice that's like, hey, not how I would have done it. Uh, like, you know, uh, not exactly my thing, but <laughs> so glad that you guys liked it. <laughs> I mean, I think it was such a weird decade for him, the 90s, that it really did feel like a success. You know, it's not like he's ever wanted for accolades, mm-hmm. but I think there really was a feeling that the bulk of his career was over or the important work that he was going to do had been done. So there is something triumphant about an album like this and the reception it got. Yeah, totally. One interesting thing to note here that kind of further symbolically uh, puts Dylan in this position of being over the hill is that one year before Time Out of Mind came out was the release of Bringing Down the Horse, which was the huge second album by The Wallflowers, the band fronted by his son, Jacob Dylan. So it's like Dylan's passing on to being like this sort of irrelevant elder statement is like made even more kind of severe by the fact that his son is for the moment now like a huge rock star. And then uh, Time Out of Mind comes out and it's like, well, dad's not done yet. Yeah, for sure. With Time Out of Mind, conversations about Dylan started being in the present tense, not like the work he has done or the figure he was. It started being about the work he was doing or the work he would go on to do. I would just say that to tie the knot, you know, Rough and Rowdy Ways was yet again him kind of returning after a period of maybe being counted out or uncertainty about his identity as an artist and uh, making a major statement that uh, reaffirms everything great about him while also opening a whole new set of possibilities for where the muse might take him next. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. So let's talk about the new album. So he released his first single, Murder Most Foul, in March, back when quarantine first hit. And it gave people this 17-minute-long epic to digest while they were stuck inside and alone before the album dropped in June. Could one of you describe this song for people who might not have spent the time, the 17 minutes, listening to it? Well, it's a really beautiful, meandering song whose narrative 
begins with the assassination of John F. Kennedy. November 63. Says the month and year that it happened and uses extremely concrete scenes and details so that you know he can't be talking about anything else. President Kennedy was a right line. Good day to be living and a good day to die. He led to the and then from there, the music sort of becomes this like, I compared it to the sound of like an orchestra packing up because you hear a lot of like, small flourishes. There's this gorgeous jazzy piano part that might have been played by Fiona Apple, which remains a mystery. But if it is, like that just makes it all the more moving. It's the longest song he's ever written, which is saying something. But it's an odd first number one. Doesn't sound like a hit, even if it's, to me, the masterpiece. I think about this a lot with the release of Murder Most Foul, because it was his first number one Billboard hit. So it was the first song that Dylan ever has had on the top of any Billboard chart. Yeah, so to get at what we were just talking about, I don't know if either of you felt this way, but it almost digesting this album feels like a guide to essential readings and listenings. Like it's so dense that it's overwhelming. Andy, I'll pose this to you. Why do you think that it saw such incredible success? I think a lot of it probably had to do with circumstances. It came out in the middle of a pandemic where everyone was relegated to their homes. And the idea of spending 17 minutes kind of digesting this like insane masterpiece that Dylan just dropped on the world without any kind of announcement was like, I know for me, it was extremely exciting. And I think probably for even if you weren't like a super devoted fan, it's like you have the time on your hands to like sit with this thing that you might not have had otherwise. The stage was set for it to become, at least for a day, this sort of huge conversation driving cultural thing. I think people were just hungry for, for Dylan music. It's been a long time since he put something out. And I think also the audacity of releasing that as the first single versus something like False Prophet, which was the second or third single, which is an, another great song, but a comparatively much more straightforward rock and roll song. I ain't no false prophet. I just know what I know. The very fact of him releasing this kind of grand, almost impenetrable thing that that, that seems like the opposite of a successful single probably contributed to the fact that uh, it was so successful. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think it's also worth noting it doesn't sound like any other Dylan song that he's put out, which is a pretty remarkable feat this deep into his career. I mean, one thing that we haven't talked about about Murder Most Foul is that like the entire second half of the song, he starts talking to this famous old DJ Wolfman Jack. Wolfman Jack, he's speaking in tongues. And the second half of the song is just like him saying, play uh, this artist, play this song. Play John Lee Hooker, play Scratch My Back. He creates this whole sort of like constellation of music and other historical references that that it does feel like yeah this is my kind of like entire cosmos that i'm giving to you and it, it does feel like a, a great listening assignment list he also in that new york times interview outright said i'm not worried about my death i'm worried about the end of human existence so do you think he's trying to educate us there's just so much history on it and so many allusions and references to me it's 
the kind of album you can really get lost in and spend a lot of time analyzing, but also in a way that doesn't feel totally like a distraction. And for how long and rambling the songs are, there are not a lot of wasted lines. I'm a huge fan of 21st Century Dylan, but there is a style of writing of songs that are kind of like a type of song, like can't you hear that Duquesne whistle blowing? To that Duquesne whistle blowing. Songs that sound almost like they could have been written by anyone at any point in time. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's what he was going for. But you don't really get a lot of that on this. Everything feels very intentional, very like annotated, which makes me as a listener kind of lean in closer and take it not more seriously, but apply myself to it in a different way. Song Key West, which I think is my favorite on the record, it made me want to research William McKinley because I didn't, I kind of just forgot that he was also assassinated. McKinley Holler, McKinley Small, Dr. Shibakinley, but death is on the wall. Say it and then I started drawing lines between McKinley and Caesar, because Caesar's also all over the album, and Caesar and JFK. That to me, that stuff is like there's no artist who makes me want to do that more than Dylan. Maybe in a way that's like a fool's errand, but also in a way that's just like insanely fun. I feel like there's also this sort of tension between him looking back on the years that he's lived in these kind of universal archetypal ways, like he is doing in parts of Murder Most Foul, like engaging with characters like JFK, who is probably like the single most kind of mythological person of your entire history if you're a 79 year old white guy but then also engaging in these like extremely personal idiosyncratic ways with like you know G goodbye jimmy reed would have been a more sort of universal archetypal song if it were instead like goodbye chuck berry or something like that like it really does also dig into things that feel really specific and personal to, to Bob Dylan. There's like another great lyric where he says, I sleep with life and death in the same bed. This just haunts me. I mean, there's, of course, a lot of death on the album as there is on most Dylan albums. But I think the death on this album is extremely literal and born out of our cultural consciousness. So it's deaths that people have some sort of association with or some frame of reference for, where it's like, even if you don't know what William McKinley did during his presidency, his name probably conjures images of the president's or history class or the 20th century. So I think those things are all really crucial. These sort of larger than life figures and the ends they meet. Totally. Yeah, Tie that in with like the false prophet art where it looks like it could be Trump being hanged and it's not an unfair leap to make. But I think he's also speaking to these American myths and American heroes. And I think like there's something about the particulars of his life and his enthusiasms placed against the backdrop of these kind of universal myths of 20th century American history. And the second to last song is this 10 minute kind of fantasy about Key West, Florida. Like, where did that come from other than some dark back corner of Bob Dylan's experience? Key West is the place to be if you're looking for immortality. Key West 
is paradise divine. I mean, I will say for an album that whether or not it actually is a swan song, I agree that it's filled with goodbyes. I mean, every song has like some kind of farewell or some character bidding adieu on a journey. The fact that it it ends with Murder Most Foul, which is like this long wrapping up song. The fact that there's a song called Goodbye Jimmy Reed that's like a literal eulogy that also speaks to his own career. All of those elements, when I listen, feel new to me. A Dylan album that's like composed of recognizable goodbyes or exit Where scenes. You are. I've already outlived my life by far. So it does end up feeling personal. I'm traveling light and I'm a slow coming home. With Bob Dylan, it's kind of written into writing about him that chances are you're not going to get to the heart of what he was trying to do, but hopefully it speaks to the experience of living with it and listening to it. Well, thanks so much for being here, Sam. Hey, thanks for having me. And thanks for being here, Andy. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. The Pitchfork Review is hosted by me, Pooja Patel. Thanks to Sam Sadomsky and Andy Kush for coming on this episode. You can follow them on Twitter at ssadomsky and at kushac. You can follow Pitchfork on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Pitchfork. This episode was produced by Jasmine Aguilera, Caitlin Pierce, Sharina Ong, and our executive producer, Alex Kappelman, with help from Ben Montoya and our assistant producer, Alex Jerome. Our original music is by Andrew Epen of Basement Crafts. This episode was edited and mixed by Mark Phillips. Special thanks to Amy Phillips and Julie Shen. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. Thanks for listening and see you next week. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starts in Dea, at the center of a tennis triangle, and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people and a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.